This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. In one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Sering Yangzom Lama, author of the novel We Measure the Earth with Our Bodies. There are many, many Tibetan writers in Tibet and in exile who live and work in obscurity and who should be translated and who should be published around the world and aren't. And that's an indictment of the West. It's not an indictment of Tibetan writers. We are naturally storytellers. We've been telling our stories for a long time. We'll be back with Sering Yangzom Lama after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show, Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews, hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters Plus, you can feel good about supporting conversations like the one you're about to hear. And with your donation, you are saying yes to continuing this space for writers and readers and those curious about the artistic process. So let's be honest. There is so much free content out there, and I know I'm competing with it. And what you're listening to is free, but it is not without expense and hard costs and labor to make. And don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love. But all told, from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours each episode. Other expenses are also involved, equipment, subscriptions to interview platforms, editing software, hosting services for the sound, and a website for the archive. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind you to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash first draft writers to donate today. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. 
And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is Sering Yangzom Lama, author of the novel, We Measured the Earth with Our Bodies. Lama earned an MFA from Columbia University and a BA from the University of British Columbia in creative writing. She was born and raised in Nepal and has since lived in Vancouver, Toronto, and New York City. We Measure the Earth with Our Bodies is her first novel, and it takes place in the wake of China's invasion of Tibet in 1959. The story centers on Lamo and her younger sister, Tenki, who journey through Tibet on foot to a refugee camp in Nepal. They lose both their parents on the treacherous journey and are haunted by the loss of their mother and father and their homeland. In their community in Nepal, refugees are always arriving, and one day a young man and his uncle appear carrying a tiny statue of a nameless saint, a relic known to vanish and reappear in times of need. Decades later, Lamo's daughter Dolma is living in Toronto, and the long-disappeared saint relic reappears and challenges her to make a choice about what to do with the saint. We began the discussion with Sering Yangzom Lama talking about the novel's title, We Measured the Earth with Our Bodies. The title, actually, I've gone through a few different titles, and this title came about about a year ago. You know, we were pretty much done doing a lot of the copy edits and things like that, but I wasn't happy with the previous title. And I pulled it from a passage about 100 pages into my novel, where one of the characters is talking about the tradition of prostration that Tibetans have. It's an ancient tradition that actually uh, a lot of cultures have. And uh, in in Tibet, uh, people will travel across great distances from one place to another holy site or circling a holy site by doing full body prostrations, essentially measuring the the land with their body very, very slowly, methodically traveling. Um, And it's, it's meant to I guess, evoke the ways in which we are deeply connected with the land uh, and a land that we worship and believe to be full of gods and spirits. And then for me, the, the other meaning is, you know, given the occupation of Tibet, for a lot of Tibetans inside, they cannot travel freely within Tibet. You, know, you need a lot of permits to move from region to region. Um, and then for Tibetans outside of Tibet who cannot enter Tibet, that is also a denial of a kind of connection with a land that we have a lot of spiritual meaning. We hold a lot of spiritual meaning with that land. So instead, we're, I guess, in a sense, condemned to travel across the world uh, with our bodies seeking safety and refuge, uh, which is the condition of so many refugees around the world. So the title for me has a dual meaning, speaking to an ancient tradition that can no longer be uh, practiced freely, but also this new form of connection with the land and how we express, you know, reverence for it and also our deep sorrow. So this story really focuses around Lamo. So Lamo is a young girl when the story opens in the very late 50s and where the setting is in Tibet and she has a younger sister, Tenki. So they are traveling with their families and they have to leave, basically. You know, the Chinese are there, they're invading, they're not letting them practice their religion, their culture. They are breaking things, they're violent, and they they need to leave. And they make a very treacherous journey over land to the border of Nepal. And the bulk of the story takes place. Um, Lamo's the main character. We see her growing up, really caring for her younger sister, taking care of her. She ends up with an uncle because both her parents um, die on the journey. And it's really about their life in the refugee camp. They end up in Toronto. And her daughter, Lamo's eventual daughter, goes to live with her sister, And it's kind of about, there's something they call the nameless saint, which is sort of a, it's a small little statue. It's kind of a talisman in a way. And it appears and reappears. And there's sort of tradition and sayings around it that it comes when you need it. And it's there for you when you need it. And there's a lot of mystery and kind of magic around it. And it appears and reappears in this book. And that's kind of the center, as well as like Lama's life. And it's also about love that can't really be because of fear or circumstances. It's about exile. It's about so much loss of a culture and your family. And how do you 
survive and how do you make new family? And we are really watching this all through the journey of Lamo. And it's a very deeply detailed about a lot of the truth that has happened to the Tibetan people. And we're watching it kind of through this mystery and through the relationships of the people in the book. So I'm curious for you, like how much of this was maybe rooted in your own family's history and how did you weave that into fiction if there is family history there? I'd say the broad sort of historical strokes of the story are rooted in family history in the sense that my family, my grandparents were nomads in Western Tibet um, and they decided to flee like tens of thousands of Tibetans uh, after the Dalai Lama left um, in uh, the late 50s and early 60s. And then my parents were, they were children when they fled over the Himalayas on foot and several of my grandparents perished in the journey and my parents were penniless refugees literally you know begging for food on the side of the road and grew up in refugee camps like so many Tibetans I know of that generation and I grew up in Nepal and I also have lived in Canada and the United States so those sort of essential three generations that's based in the truth also the refugee settlements these are all based in real refugee settlements although I fictionalized them um, then the story itself, in terms of the characters, that's all invented. Um, and I think people have a hard time believing that, <laughs> but it is, uh, you know, I don't have an oracle in my family. My father, who's passed away, was a carpet businessman. He, you know, he wasn't involved in the antiques trade, which I haven't mentioned yet uh, in any interview. But, you know, so, but the more important thing, sort of the, the wider story of these three generations, that is based in the truth. And that's something that um, I wanted to capture in one narrative. So what was it like for you emotionally to start writing this story? I mean, you're, you're kind of mixing fiction with family history and cultural history. Like you're carrying in your DNA, you're literally carrying the weight of, of exile. Um, I think there was a lot of personal resistance uh, in writing the story. Um, I spent a few years, you know, I sort of had the characters in mind and the general broad stroke arcs, sort of, you know, who I wanted and where I wanted the story to go. But I had a lot of resistance with actually filling out the world, you know, describing the setting, describing the suffering of the early days. Um, even like getting to know my characters was a, I had a resistance there. Like Lama was initially just, just very like buttoned up and like really, you, you really couldn't figure out who she was for several years. And I had to sort of like allow myself to um, imagine things that I didn't experience. And a part of that, you know, growing up with the privilege that I've had, uh, you know, I tend to have a lot of awe and reverence for people who preceded like the previous generation. And so I felt like, oh, can I even write about this? And then I physically cannot go to Tibet as well because most Tibetans cannot get a visa. I'm like, can I write about Tibet? Um, and so I had to really give myself permission to even tell the story and to do the research um, and, to, and to also imagine the rest of it. There's a lot of lot of stuff that I made up <laughs> like any writer but I think that's all of this is uh, a lot of undoing of um, sort of internalized uh, colonization and uh, uh, sort of alienation from one's culture um, and what came out of this experience which was really beautiful for me was um, about four years in once I had the shape of the story I started a new draft and then I spent a lot of time researching I spent a lot of time in the stacks at Columbia, which has one of the best libraries for Tibetan scholarship in the world. And also I went to the border of Tibet and Nepal and spent 15 minutes on Tibetan soil, which uh, I was fortunately able to, you know, to do. Um, and so building a different kind of knowledge, um, I, and also like really deeply engaging with my culture, uh, these traditions like the oracular tradition, the terma text tradition, which is a, a tradition in which we believe that there are all these texts hidden all over Tibet hundreds of years ago that are that appear and disappear in moments of need, which is what I made the, the saint, the statue of the saint to be a terma. 
essentially. And so all, all of these interesting sort of things I learned about, I turned them into um, narrative tools, I guess. Uh, I used them to build the story. And then for me personally, it was really gratifying because it was a way for me to build a bridge back to a country that history has denied me. Um, and so that was, I think the most valuable thing of this entire process was that sort of self edification, or I guess the self, like the engagement with uh, a culture that I uh, now find to be like a source of lifelong fascination. And I will continue to study and write uh, through my fiction. You said that you, you're, you know, fascinated by this culture for the rest of your life. And I sense that there's this, and please correct me if I'm wrong, like there is kind of a distance because it is your culture, but it sounds like you're also like learning about it. Like it's not completely lived in your life. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I think so. For instance, the oracular tradition, um, which is an ancient, ancient tradition in Tibet, you know, it traces back to like as old as like the Greek oracular tradition, if you think about it, um, in that in that scale. Um, the way it manifests right now in exile is like my mom's little sister will do premonitions like if you know I want to like find out like how's my trip gonna go she'll like do a little thing with her uh rosary and she can do and she's pretty good at it and she's like known in our family for being good at it but that's like seen as quite like quotidian or like you know just like normal um but I hadn't had this like deep experience of like oracles like being in our community that we like regularly visited to be healed, to have our uh, our uh, our conflicts mediated by, or to um, to receive advice from the gods. So this is how a lot of traditional Tibetan villages worked. But I did find out from my sister when I told her what the novel was about, which I really hadn't told her or anybody in my family for like ten years while I was working on it. What the story actually was, I told her it was a, it's about a it's about a village oracle. And uh, my sister, who grew up more in the in the camp than I did, uh, she said, "Oh, you know, we had three oracles in our camp growing up, like in the." 70s and 80s and they used to heal people and I remember witnessing them healing people um, but she has sort of forgotten about that because it's not necessarily something that it doesn't really necessarily have a place anymore in our lives and in the, in, in the world that we live in um, and so that's the situation and, and even the oracles that lived in our camp their children who might have continued on that practice had they been in, still in Tibet you know, th those, their children did not carry on that practice because, you know, they had to survive in Nepal. They had to survive as refugees. And uh, it's not an easy thing to be an oracle <laughs> in Nepal and to continue to, you know, like have money and stuff. There isn't a built-in economy in, in Nepal for oracles. <laughs> so um, I guess, yeah, in a sense, uh, the pressures of surviving in 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 a part of the world where our traditional beliefs and practices don't necessarily have a place um that does alienate us from those traditional beliefs and systems to some degree and um uh, for me the understanding i have of these uh, uh traditional beliefs you know tibetan beliefs it is sort of mediated through like more day-to-day um, -day experience rather than the intense version that might have existed in Tibet and now even doesn't exist in Tibet. It's really much more threatened in Tibet than it has been in the past. So yeah, there's, there's a way in which Tibetan people face existential crisis or existential um, threats, but also our culture does. And that manifests in, in lots of different ways. And for me, it's manifested in you know, I've learned English, I've learned French, I've learned German, but, you know, I finally learned Tibetan, like reading and writing Tibetan in my mid-20s. Um, and that's because I never got to attend a Tibetan school. There's a very intellectual side of your book because Lamo's daughter, when she goes to Toronto, wants to be a scholar. And she goes to a party and there's a lot of discussions happening around her. And it's, I mean, people aren't necessarily talking with her. They're kind of talking at her about her mm -hmm. culture. And, you know, one way to sort of sum up some of that is that there's this idea in the West that I think is pretty prevalent about Tibet being this Shang Shangri-La, being this Shambhala. And 
I think there's a lot of reverence for that culture and a lot of respect for it, but also maybe in that process is sort of a minimization of it or like a not exact like full seeing of it. And you write about that. And I just wanted to ask you about that element of the book and writing about that. And yeah, I think there's been like a, a longstanding fascination with Tibetan culture um, in the West and even in the East um, for centuries. Um, and and a, a lot of that has to do with sort of the uh, interest in Tibetan uh, metaphysics and mysticism. And sometimes it's quite confused, like it's uh, it's not even accurate or um, like Shangri-La, you know, this uh, is based on this novel uh, by James Hilton called Lost Horizon. Of course, it's deriving from Shampala, which is, which is a Tibetan idea. But Shangri-La in Lost Horizon is a place in which um, uh, Tibetan people are essentially silent, grunting servants. Um, and uh, the Westerners who land in Shangri-La can live forever and have a beautiful life where they're served by these grunting barbarian Tibetans. Um, and the Tibetans don't live forever. <laughs> and then there's a Chinese leader there as well. And he also does very well in Shangri-La. So, you know, this is just an example, but like there is this just like with anything with Orientalism, these myths about a unknown place often have more to do with the fantasies, desires, anxieties of the empire that's imagining that place or interested in that place rather than actually listening to or hearing from the people from that place. And I think, you know, I grew up as an activist, uh, like a lot of Tibetans, you know, we, we, uh, you know, we are engaged in a struggle. We are engaged in a struggle for freedom and human rights and recognition of our ongoing occupation, which is itself a difficult thing to achieve. And I would find that a lot of people in the West were very appreciative of Tibetan Buddhism, but, you know, did not know or engage with the ongoing suffering of Tibetan people who practice Buddhism and Tibetan monks and nuns and how oppressed they are in China and how difficult it is for them to practice. And so I think there has been a way in which Tibetan people have been separated from Tibetan culture. Um, and that's not a unique situation, right? Like that's happened to indigenous peoples. That's happened to African-Americans. Like there's an appreciation for the culture of a, of a, of a people, but you know, that, that deep engagement or uh, ethical engagement with their conditions, their material day-to-day -day conditions is sometimes lacking. In that moment you know, that you're speaking to in the book where Doma is, you know, she wants to be a Tibet scholar and she's talking to all of these Western scholars who their bread and butter is studying Tibet and they talk down to her. I mean, I think that's actually pretty accurate in terms of like, I mean, Edward Said's written about this. A lot of people have talked about how even academia is a uh, is an institution of colonial violence and uh, colonial power, right? And uh, the ways in which people in academia or all spaces in the West or in China where there's power, if they're not speaking to the oppressions of that group they're studying or that group that they're speaking for, then they are engaging in the same power dynamics and benefiting from that ongoing oppression. Um, now, I think academia, Tibet studies has been slowly transforming and having more and more like interest in having Tibetan voices. And that's probably because they have no choice because the, the discourse has changed like externally. It's like no longer acceptable to just have a bunch of like white academics <laughs> talking about Tibet without a Tibetan person in that panel. So like everything else, these things happen because people demand and push for change, not because of any benevolence of the, of the people in these institutions. So let's talk about the desires and fantasies of Lamo. She's your, your main character. We see her throughout her whole entire life, basically. We meet her when she's a young girl. Um, you were talking about oracles, so her mother was an oracle and was really looked looked to in her village. People came to seek her out for advice and help. And so that was kind of the world she saw as a child and then moving 
what were you, was really nagging about you or curious? What were you curious about creating in her that you wanted to explore? I mean, you mentioned that you didn't even tell your family that you were working on this for 10 years. So I don't know how many years she lived in your head, but that's a long time to be creating her. I, I think Lamo, you know, she's a child of war. Like the book begins, she's already on the border. She's already lost everything at the point when the book begins. Um, and she spent most of her adolescence watching the slow invasion of Tibet. Um, and it's, it happened gradually, it happened slowly. And she's watched this whole thing and then she's lost everything by the time the book begins. And she's trying to make sense of it. And then she's trying to figure out how to help her family and how to keep things together when everything's falling apart. So her parents die, as you mentioned, and she's seen as sort of the responsible one who can raise her little sister and take care of her little sister, who is seen as the brilliant one, sort of the hope, um, like her mother. And I, I, with Lamo, you know, I think she is somebody who, she sacrifices a lot on one level, she's not told that she can achieve a lot. You know, this is not a narrative that she's uh, given. Um, and on another level, she really just loves her sister and she wants to take care of her. And this is all she has left. Um, and for her, it's a lifelong struggle to continue to uh, care for the people she loves within her very, very limited means. Um, and you know, the, the story of the two sisters, they, their lives fork dramatically. One remains in the camp. That's Lamo. She remains there for her whole life. And the other goes further and further away into more and more distant exile to India and then to the West. I, I guess I wanted to explore through Lamo, the, the many sacrifices and the many choices that she makes, but she's also not a perfect person. Like she's, she has jealousy. She has pettiness. She also wishes things for herself, but she faces a lot of barriers. Um, and I think both with Tamo and Tenki, I wanted to explore the ways in which, you know, one's, one's path in life is really impacted by history, even by a few years difference in terms of, you know, when you're born. Um, I think living in the West, we have a real problem with believing in like our like our destiny being carved by our own individual actions. Like like that's the main thing. And I think like it's a beautiful idea in some ways because it kind of people become very uh, motivated to do good work and push and follow their dreams. But also it can make us very like unsympathetic to the fates of a lot of people who don't have the kinds of privileges we have. It can also make us unsympathetic to ourselves, I find. Um, we don't recognize the, the, the broader uh, sort of structural influences on our fates. Um, and I think, you know, Lamo, no matter what, she tries to do the best she can in the situation she's in. I think through her and through Tenki, I wanted to explore that because I've also had um, like Tanky, you know, sort of felt a lot of like people thinking that I have so much promise and all of this stuff, but I've had so much more privilege. And I guess this was a way for me to contend with my own sense of moral questioning or disorientation about the different fates that people have had, including in my own broader family. Like, why should I have the things that I have while well, some of my relatives have almost nothing? I think it's definitely sort of the uh, the ethical core of the book, uh, you know, which is to recognize how important um, history is in our fates. And also, like, more importantly, like, how important our relationships are to our survival. Like, um, the book is uh, segmented into certain sections, uh, daughters, sisters, lovers, and self. And the reason I did that was because I really think that identity is relational. And I also think, especially in exile, the ways people's families got torn apart and then they had to make new families um, and, and how that was a way for people to survive. That's something that I really wanted to capture. So yes, we are subject to the fates, the winds of fate, but also the ways in which we recreate ourselves through our 
sense of bond or uh, duty to each other, that also has uh, an important role in, in, in this novel. You mentioned earlier that you've been an activist your whole life, and I'm wondering if you consider yourself a writer who's also an activist or an activist who also writes, or if that's too binary. I think first and foremost, I'm a writer because I think my love of books came first. You know, growing up in Nepal, I had a lot of books and I was very fortunate that my father would take me book shopping, which is also a rare privilege because um, we don't have a ton of libraries in Nepal, public libraries. So I, I first and foremost have loved books all my life and stories. Um, and, 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 but I do think that these things are not, I think often in, in the U.S., they're seen as separate, um, but like in other parts of the world, they're not. Like in Latin America, a lot of writers have a political, you know, sort of perspective and and and, and express that with pride, right? Um, and in Tibet, writers are some of the most oppressed, the most targeted, actually. Uh, it's extremely dangerous to be a writer of anything in Tibet, and you have to be very, very careful and write with a lot of subtlety you know, a lot of metaphors, a lot of hidden codes to be able to express your ideas. And even then, you know, writers are regularly in prison for 10, 20 years. Um, and sometimes some of them never see the light of day again if they write something that the Chinese government doesn't like. And even Tibetan writers in exile uh, face a lot of pressures. So, you know, for some, some people in other parts of the world, it's not a choice. You know, if you want to express yourself freely, you often come up against authoritarian powers. Because free expression is itself a threat to authoritarian powers, to autocratic governments. So it doesn't, you know, and, and if you're a writer, if you're somebody who wants to pay attention to the world and, and you see how the world is in your perspective, and then you see the ways in which it could and should change, you see the injustices, then that is your politics. That is your political perspective. And that will inform what you write and how you write. I think in, in the U.S., I think, especially in the MFA program, I went to Columbia. At first, I, was, I had just come from being an activist for two years in my community. And I came to Columbia, and I felt kind of estranged. I was like, oh, I, can I write about my community? Like, it feels like this is weird. Like, I should just be writing, like, I don't know, like neutral stories of growing up in California or something. Um, but of course, that's not neutral. That is itself political because that is saying that this is what you're interested in. This is the world that you want to write about. And this is what you believe to be important. And that is only a, uh, that only re reveals something about U.S. hegemonic culture, like that this is what is considered neutral, what is considered apolitical. And if you write about uh, Mexican immigrants at the border, if you write about uh, refugees from elsewhere in the world, if you write about the condition of, of marginal communities, then that's considered political because, of course, you're going to be writing about injustice. You're going to be writing about struggle. And that's, that's considered political while other things are not. Uh, so I reject that. I think everybody has a politics and, um, and you know, other places in the world uh, embrace that more freely than perhaps in the, in the West. Can you talk about this idea of the coup and the nameless saint? And you said you based it on the, is it termas? Mm -hmm. um, this idea that something manifests or materializes when you need it most, and then poof, it might be gone for oh, a year, 10 years, two weeks, who knows? Yes, exactly. So uh, about a thousand years ago, uh, Guru Rinpoche, uh, who was a Buddhist master from India, and Yushi Tsongyal, who was a Tibetan partner of his, they buried these texts all over Tibet. There are two kinds of termas. There's mind terma, which is an idea that's buried in the mind of a future practitioner who has not even been born yet. And then there are physical termas, which are like actual texts, and they can be buried in caves, rocks, rivers, lakes, all over. And and they're buried there so that one day when the right person comes along, they will suddenly know where to find it. Either it'll just kind of appear to them or they will have a dream, for instance, that says, go to this cave and look for this rock and search there and you will see a text hidden there by Guru Rinpoche and Yishitso Gao. And that text will be a teaching that this period, this time needs. And once you find that, 
you have to share it, and then you have to rebury that text. So, you know, all of these treasure texts are considered to be hidden around Tibet still, right? To, it, in, in, in a sense, to reappear whenever we need it. And I think that that's a really beautiful way to capture our, the scale of our connection to that land and the, the sort of the scale of, that mythic scale of Tibetan belief and Tibetan destiny. Um, and the coup is uh, my way of capturing this. So the coup is actually based on a real statue that I saw at the Rubin Museum in 2012 or so. It's part of their permanent collection, but it's not always on display. But I saw this little statue. It's a made of mudstone. It's got gold patina and a very strange expression that from one side looks like very joyful, like I have just had a religious experience and realized enlightenment. And from another side looks very pained, uh, like, like deep, deep suffering. And also this is very unusual for Buddhist like statues and imagery and iconography, like Buddhist imagery has often either a very like peaceful looking face like the, the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, or like a, like a wrathful face, like Yamantaka, the god of death, who's meant to help you cut through your ignorance. Whereas this looked very human to me. Um, and and more, to, more interestingly too, as well, like the statue had no information, like so many Tibetan statues that somehow ended up in the West, either taken, stolen, smuggled out, and ending up all over the world in different museums. All the statue said was 15th century, um, Mahasida, which is a kind of a saint. And that was it. We didn't know the name. We didn't know the history. And I think that captured for me the way in which, you know, Tibetan civilization has been transformed or, or like traveled and decontextualized as well. But then as I wrote this book and as I worked through these ideas more and more, I came to imagine that like, you know, the theft itself is too simple of a story. Like this goo is a religious object. This goo is a spiritual object of great power for Tibetans. And even if it's right now in a, in a museum or even if it's wherever it is, right? Like in the story, it's in some wealthy person's like safe, safety deposit box in their house. Um, this coup has its own destiny and its own will and its own agency. And that would be very true to the way that we would have seen this. So I also wanted to say that, you know, the th theft is not even possible that this goo is actually doing something of its own will. So it was a very interesting way to, for me to capture many, many ideas through one single object, the fate of our civilization, but also the beauty of the Terma tradition and also colonization and like what's happened with our objects. Yeah, there is a lot of, of commentary or, or focus on objects. There's there's two. One you mentioned earlier that a lot of people um, where you grew up have to learn all these languages because they're selling trinkets to tourists. So there's like the trinket aspect. And then the other aspect is there's a character in there, Sanfel, who a, a llama loves, who is selling off artifacts to other countries, mm -hmm. to buyers from other countries. And he has like some really specific thoughts about it. I mean, I think there's part of it where it's like just brute survival and there's part of it. It's like, they have taken so much, like I have to benefit somehow in this life. How do I do it? And I was wondering if you could talk about that. The theft of Tibetan material culture, that's been, I mean, in the early 1900s, the British also stole so much stuff. Um, and, you know, the Chinese have stolen a ton and even Tibetans have participated in the theft and dissemination of our holy relics from Tibet. Um, and I, I wanted to be in that space of moral ambiguity. Um, I didn't want to choose any position. I completely understand and sympathize with Samfell's position, which is that like, you know, we've been abandoned. I'm an orphan how was I supposed to survive? Like, what was I actually supposed to do? Um, and, and he really had nobody. Um, and, but then he had this desire to go back into Tibet and find his mother's photo, her, his mother's portrait that his father said was buried under the ground. 
before they left and he never met his mother and all his life he had had this longing to know his mother because his father died in the early days of exile so this obsession with getting back to that thing that was buried in tibet led him down this path of uncovering all kinds of other things that he found instead and then you know it gave him a path to survive and also to take care of his family in a sense you know you know in a hidden way he took care of, of his family um, and I think that's actually, it, it captures the, 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 the reality, you know, um, of, of a lot of people, uh, including Tibetans. You, you can't be like, um, this like moralistic sort of like judgmental person, you know, like when, when you're talking about a people who are literally stateless and, uh, whose lives are marred by the trauma of colonization and displacement, um, so I have a lot of sympathy for Soundfeld, but of course he would be considered like a, like he would not be like celebrated in my community, let's just say, you know, like this is a taboo topic uh, Tibetans don't often talk about. And I wanted to talk about it because I don't think it's helpful to just have a black and white narrative. I think we have, we don't have to be pure and good all the time to deserve human rights or to deserve dignity. Like we can be complicated and implicated as well and our culpability can be a part of the story and it's still it's still necessary for us to have the same dignity as anybody else you mentioned 10 years earlier i don't know if that if it took you more than 10 years it sounded like it was 10 years before you even admitted to your family what you were writing but <laughs> can you talk a little bit about how long it did take you to write this book and if it changed a lot or if it was just kind of like a deepening i mean you had mentioned also like towards the end that you decorated? So I started this book in my, at the very beginning of my second semester at Columbia in the MFA program. That was about 12 years ago. Um, and I sold the book at the 10 year mark. And then the last two years, I heavily edited even more than I think my editors thought I would. And I tried to push for a fourth round and they wouldn't let me. So then I sent them a word doc with all the requests <laughs> that they had to input before it went to press. So I got very obsessed in the final stages. Um, and I, I think I turned into a different person, honestly, like it just became a complete obsession. And I wanted to perfect this book as much as I possibly could. The first four years though, I was just I was workshopping, I was, you know, I had mentors. And so I was just producing pages. I was just making my characters do things, moving them around. I knew who the characters were, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And then there was a lot of time researching. And once I figured out what my story was, Maza Mengiste was my mentor and she told me, you know, you have to stop polishing this. You need to finish a draft and then you'll see what the story is. And so I finished a draft and then I erased the whole document and started over because now I knew what the story was. And so there were just countless, countless drafts like that. Um, I spent about two, two months every year, if I could help it, like at residencies. I've always had a full-time job um, working as an activist or working as an educator. And so in those residencies, I did a lot of deep transformative work. That was really important because I could have long stretches where I thought of nothing but my work. Um, and in that space, I changed the structure so many times. This whole thing at first had a lot of short chapters where we just went back and forth between different characters. And then I decided, no, I'm going to write one character for a long stretch. And then it was in all in first, uh, third person and it became in first person, past tense, went to present tense. I mean, this thing got changed so many, so many times. I had to just try everything to, um, access my characters, um, and work through the resistances that I had, as I mentioned earlier. Since you said you were a different person and you were kind of obsessed with it, are you able to let it go now? Yes, I think so, more or less. <laughs> I mean, I, when I read it at readings, there are things I want to change, but I understand that that's a normal thing for most writers. Um, and every once in a while, I. I, I find myself like appreciating what I've done, but mostly I'm like, okay, you know, I wonder, I wonder what I would have done if I had another year. Um, so, you know, but I think I'm, I'm keen to get, get going 
on the next project as well. So I've let it go only because, you know, now I'm trying to form a new obsession. Will it be translated at all into Tibetan or, or Nepali for the communities where you came from? We, we're hoping so. Um, there's interest from Nepal to translate it. Um, Tibetan, I would really love that. Um, it will be a slow process because it's a long book and there aren't that many translators. Um, but the book is slowly making its way through the community. Uh, I just did a tour of the United States and also part of Canada. And, um, you know, for me, the most important thing is that the book resonates with Tibetans, that those are the, the people that I believe it will mean the most to. And I certainly don't want to write this like a tour guide <laughs> to Westerners. You know, I'm trying to speak to my community and I'm doing it in the English language and I'm doing it through Western presses because I live in the West and this is, this is the language I work in. It's my tradition, the English literature. But um, it's really important for me that Tibetans um, engage with it. And uh, I've, been really, I've been really beautifully surprised by especially young Tibetans who you know, have come up to me very moved and said they've read the book in two days. Um, and then they're telling me about the things they want to write. And so that's like really exciting for me because as you know, like publishing can be quite a conservative world. You know, they need comparable titles to publish books, you know, and there aren't that many Tibetan novels. And so I was fortunate that my agent and my editors came along and, you know, championed the book. But I hope that, you know, this signals to Western publishers that there are Tibetan readers and there is interest in Tibetan stories. And there are many, many Tibetan writers in Tibet and in exile who live and work in obscurity and who should be translated and who should be published around the world and aren't. And that's an indictment of the West. It's not an indictment of Tibetan writers. We are naturally storytellers. We've been telling our stories for a long time. Um, and I'm excited to see the next generation of Tibetan writers that I've begun to meet. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I'm just going to read a little bit from Edward Said, who I've mentioned a couple of times uh, from Reflections on Exile. Exile is strangely compelling to think about, but terrible to experience. It is the unhealable rift forced between a human being and a native place, between the self and its true home. Its essential sadness can never be surmounted. And while it is true that literature and history contain heroic, romantic, glorious, even triumphant episodes in an exile's life, they are no more than efforts meant to overcome the crippling sorrow of estrangement. The achievements in ex of exile are permanently undermined by the loss of something left forever. But if true exile is a condition of terminal loss, why has it been transformed so easily into a potent, even enriching motif of modern culture? We have become accustomed to thinking of the modern period itself as spiritually orphaned and alienated, the age of anxiety and estrangement. I'm going to move forward a little bit. But the difference between earlier exiles and those of our time is it bears stressing scale, our age with its modern warfare, imperialism, and the quasi-theological ambitions of totalitarian rulers is indeed the age of the refugee, the displaced person, mass immigration. Against this large impersonal setting, exile cannot be made to serve notions of humanism. On the 20th century scale, exile is neither aesthetically nor humanistically comprehensible. At most, the literature about exile objectifies an anguish and a predicament most people rarely experience firsthand. But to think of the exile informing this literature as beneficially humanistic is to banalize its mutilations, the losses it inflicts on those who suffer the muteness with which it responds to any attempt to understand it as good for us. The reason I read that um, is because it reminds me that it's really important not to romanticize exile, that to, it's really important to speak of exile in plain terms about the bodily experience day to day of ordinary people torn from their land. Can you share something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. So this is from the beginning of Tanki's section, which I found to be 
very difficult to write. I rewrote it many, many times. Um, so this is the beginning of her section now. All my life, I have wanted to tell you the story, but a story must start at the beginning and I have almost nothing from the start of my life. Not your face and not Bala's. All I have is a few corners of our abandoned house. I erase the rest without intending to. I let them fall away by doing nothing. Instead, I'm cursed with a thousand memories I cannot reach. My sister must remember what you look like, but Ajalamo never answers my questions about the past. If only I could open her mind like a jar. If I could just peer inside and see you once, how real you would become, how real you are struggling to become, even now, from the distance of 50 years. When I saw you last, you were leaving to gather firewood. In the final minutes of daylight, I watched your back slip away between the trees. With each blink, you grew fainter until there was no shape that resembled you. Then it was morning, and Ajalhamo said you had died in the night. Where, where, I asked, craning my neck to scan the snow-dusted riverbank, searching for you in Acha's eyes. Gone, gone, she said. I could hear nothing but water flowing down the mountains, along the banks of the river we had followed for months. I told her she was wrong, that you were just picking up branches. Gone, gone, Acha repeated, her eyes red and large. Gone beyond gone. Do you want to share anything else about why you chose that? I think because I struggled to start her story, I decided to start with her struggle in telling her story. <laughs> Where do you write? I mostly write in this windowless little room in my apartment that's called a den. But it's, I think it's like a food storage room. And I like it because it's like a little cave. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I take long walks. I walk uh, at least an hour every day. And I get a lot of good thinking done. Who do you show you work to first to get feedback? I don't show it to anybody for a long time. <laughs> um, but when I'm ready, I show it to my husband. How have you dealt with rejection? Oh, it doesn't bother me anymore. I just immediately forget about it. Um, I get rejected all the time for residencies, for all kinds of things. It's just a part of day-to-day -day life. You have to grow very thick skin. And what is your favorite word? I thought about this. I don't have a favorite word. It's not how I think about language. So I cannot answer that question. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. Thank you, Mitzi. Thank you very much. If you like today's show with Sering Yangzom Lama, author of We Measure the Earth with Our Bodies, check out my interview with Anouk Arud Pergasam, author of the novel The Story of a Brief Marriage. We talked about the Sri Lankan Civil War, the refugee crisis there, and writing fiction to figure out how he feels about the world. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 380 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Zaina Hashembeck, Charles Baxter, Elizabeth Strout, and Lydia Yuknovich. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this show happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.